It is good to be with you guys today. <clears throat> if you would open up your Bibles, if you brought one, to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We're going to start today in verse 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Um, we're going to have the scriptures behind me. You can follow along with us. We're going to start today a little two-week series on um, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, Jesus talks about the second coming of Christ. And so we're going to do a two-week series here this week and next week on the second coming of Jesus. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of warning for those of you who are attention deficit, have that, um, like me. Over the next uh, few minutes, we've got to do a lot of theology, a lot of background, a lot of context to kind of get to the point today. This is one of those messages, you just got to do it. If I jumped in, I would not do it well. And so it's going to take some time, hang in there with me all the way. Um, one, because again, a lot of theology, a lot of context to kind of get where we're going. And uh, secondly, or second rather, this is probably the most confusing chapter of the Bible, or definitely the New Testament, outside of the book of Revelation. It's one of the most misinterpreted scriptures outside of the uh, book of Revelation. So again, hang with me all the way, engage, and hopefully you'll learn something. I think you will, and I say that because I definitely learned something this week when I was studying it. So let's turn your Bibles, Mark chapter 13. We'll start in verse 4 in just a second. <clears throat> but what I want you to do is I'm just going to read you a handful of verses here. And um, for those of you that have spent some time in church growing up, I want you to read, the, or rather, I want you to listen to these verses, and I want you to think about what comes to mind when I read these verses to you, okay? Now, a lot of you didn't grow up in church, or maybe you're new uh, to church, or you're not even a believer. I'm going to read these verses to you, and they're not going to mean anything to you, and that's okay. Hopefully, by the end of the message, they will mean something to you. Um, but believers that have been walking with Jesus for a while, listen to these. What comes to mind when you hear these verses? Mark chapter 13, verse 4. The disciples are speaking here, and they're talking to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. <clears throat> and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, now when you hear those words, what do you think about, right? If you're anything like me and you did grow up in church or uh, if you're anything like me and you were alive and cognizant during the book series Left Behind that came out in the 90s that took over the world. Anybody remember that back in the day? What, I mean, took over the nation. If, if you were alive during that period, then you hear those words, and what comes to your mind is you're like, that is Jesus talking about his second coming. And as a matter of fact, there, there have been generation after generation after generation that have gotten really, really hung up trying to interpret the second coming, when it's going to be, when it's going to happen in light of these words of Jesus. Okay, I remember being... When I was a kid back in the 80s, <clears throat> I remember hearing a preacher talk about 
uh, his whole sermon was, he talked about all the earthquakes that were happening in the 80s and how much there were so many more earthquakes than all the other decades and that there was all these famines going on in the 80s, so much more than all the other decades. And he was convinced based on Mark chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus was coming back and he was coming back like by Christmas, right? I mean, he was, he was fired up about it. I remember that as a little kid. But here's what I want you to hear, okay? And here's what I want you to understand. I want you to listen very, 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 very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because this is going to hinge, a lot of what we're talking about is going to hinge on, on this right here. In the verses that I just read, okay, Jesus is talking about his eventual return. And he is talking about the second coming here. And I'm going to explain more about that in just a minute. But there's also something I want you to understand. In these verses that I just read and, and more, I'll read, Jesus is also prophesying and he's predicting and he's describing an event, right, that's going to happen within the lifetime of the disciples. Okay, did you catch that? So he is talking about his second coming. I'll explain in a second. But he's also prophesying and predicting an event that's about to happen within the lifetime of the disciples. Let's look at the context in which Jesus makes these statements. Turn to Mark 13, <coughs> verse 1, and let's look at the context and what Jesus is talking about here. So um, Jesus and his disciples are, are at the temple. They're in Jerusalem, and they've been worshiping at the temple. They walk out and watch what happens. In verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so they've been at the temple in Jerusalem. They've been worshiping God. They walk out of the temple and one of the disciples, probably Peter, he turns around and he says, check it out, Jesus. Look at the temple. This is awesome. Look, look at these great buildings. Look at these beautiful stones. And that's historically accurate. We know the temple at the time was gorgeous. And so he just is making a comment, probably making conversation. Jesus, look how awesome the building is. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement. I'll explain a lot more in a second, but Jesus just drops a bomb on him right here. Watch what he says. After probably Peter said, this, these are great buildings. Watch what Jesus says in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Question, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so here, here's the context. They're walking out of the temple. Somebody turns around, Jesus, let's check this out. This is great. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, guess what? There's not going to be one single stone that's going to be left on the other. In other words, what Jesus just said is, boys, that temple right there that's so gorgeous, it's going to be destroyed. That's what Jesus just said. All right? He said, yes, they're beautiful, but you need to understand, disciples, that building is going to be destroyed. And that completely freaked them out. Because Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, the scripture says, they go, they get him privately. They take him away privately. Let's read it. Mark chapter 13, verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and by the way, the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, is literally right across the street from the temple. I didn't know that until I went to Israel. But it's right there in the Bible. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. Now watch what they ask him. They say, tell us when will these things be? When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus says, fellas, the temple's going to be destroyed. They freak out. They pull him aside privately. They say, Jesus, what are the signs going to be that the temple is going to be destroyed? Right? And then that's the question. Listen very carefully. 
Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, the disciples are not asking Jesus about his second coming. In Mark chapter 13, the disciples are asking him when the temple is going to be destroyed. And it was in the answer to that question that Jesus says all this stuff. Let me just read it to you, okay? Read the question again, verse 4. Tell us, the disciples said to Jesus, when will these things be? You just said the temple is going to be destroyed. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come to me in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are the beginning of the birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. Listen carefully to this. And father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and go get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that it may not be winter in that time. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise before many signs lead astray if possible the elect. In verse 23, it says, be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Okay, now, in the verses I just read to you, Jesus was predicting the events leading up to the destruction of the temple. The disciples asked him, when's the temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs leading up to the destruction of the temple? And all those verses are Jesus saying, these are going to be the signs. Now, guess what? He got them all right. He got them all right. In 70 AD, 37 years after he spoke those words, you know what happened? The temple was destroyed. This guy named Titus, he wanted to take over the leadership of the Romans. So he gathered an army together and he went and he attacked the city of Jerusalem and he completely leveled the temple. Every single sign that Jesus said happened within 37 years of the words coming out of his mouth. Jesus predicted that the, uh, that the Jewish folks were going to hear about this coming before it happened. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And historically, we know that's true. They heard that it was going to happen, but they didn't act on it. Jesus predicted that there was going to be famines. That happened when Titus came to the city of Jerusalem. He decided that the way that he wanted to destroy it was through a siege. 
And the ancient writer Josephus talks about this siege in a book called The War of the Jews where he describes it in great detail. Josephus tells us that 97,000 Jews survived it and made it out, but 1.1 million Jews died and the vast majority of those 1.1 million died through slow starvation. Jesus said it, it came true. Jesus said, hey, look, when you see the army coming, when you see this, all the signs taking place, you run, run to the mountains. If you're on your housetop, don't go back inside the house and get your coat, just go. That's the opposite of what the people did when they saw the armies of Rome coming. They ran to the city, not away from the city. And they were uh, cut out and starved, right? Jesus predicted woe to those who are nursing in those days. Absolutely true. The writings of Josephus are almost too hard to bear when you hear what the Jewish people went through. It was mind-blowing. They got so hungry that women were killing their children and eating them. Children were killing their parents and eating them. Everything Jesus said came true. Jesus predicted that not one stone of the temple will be left upon another. That happened. The, the temple was completely leveled. Now watch verse 30. Watch verse 30 because this is where a lot of people get hung up that are just trying to interpret this in light of the second coming. In Mark chapter 13, verse 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's speaking to the disciples and he said, Your generation's not going to pass away until all these things take place. And that church... Is how we know for certain that Jesus wasn't just talking about the second coming. All right, because he says all this stuff is going to take place before this generation dies. And again, he was right. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD in the lifetime of the men who he just spoke that to, his disciples. Now, here's what's crazy, right? Here's what's crazy. And here's why this chapter is so confusing and has been for generations that that yes, Jesus is most definitely talking about with crazy accurate detail the destruction of the temple. But mixed in all this crazy accurate detail of the destruction of the temple, Jesus does predict his return. All right, now let's read it. Mark 13, 23. Watch what Jesus says. It's right after all these signs. He says, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, and soon its branch becomes tender and put out its leaves. You know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates, all right? So again, right in the middle of this really accurate prediction of the destruction of the temple, Jesus just kind of pops in there and goes, oh yeah, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, right? And that's why as Americans, this chapter makes absolutely no sense to us because we're like, okay, I'm reading this. Is he talking about the destruction of the temple or... Is he talking about him coming back? And the answer is yes. He's talking about both. And he's implementing here a very ancient Jewish strategy of communication. 
as 21st century Americans, we learn our pattern of thinking from the Greeks. Uh, and the Greeks and us, we think very literally on, on a timetable. It's like this happens the way we think. It's the way our, our brains are wired. It's the way we communicate. It's like this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And that's the way we think and that's the way we talk. Ancient Hebrews did not think that way and they didn't communicate that way. They think and communicate circularly. In other words, as long as the main point gets out, that it doesn't matter the timetable. That doesn't matter. The main point is the main point. And Old Testament is full of this kind of communication. All you got to do is you got to go look at the, the, the uh, prophecies of the Messiah. Some psalmist or, or a prophet will be speaking of the Messiah, but you learn when you go study it, it had a current context where he's talking about something that was happening right then and there, but then it had also had a future context that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's an ancient writing uh, style of the Hebrews. They use it all the time, and that is what Jesus is doing here. And so when the disciples come to him and they ask him the question, Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? He is taking the opportunity, he's, he's taking the opportunity right then and there to answer that question for them in the current context. And he's also pointing them, and he's pointing you and me, by the way, to the future reality that he's coming back. Okay, now, that begs the question. I'm almost done with the theology here. Hang with me. That begs the question, Why? Why did he choose this moment in time? In the three years that he had, why did he choose this moment to explain the second coming in light of the destruction of the temple? Why, why in this place did he decide, yes, the temple's going to be destroyed and I'm coming back? Why then? Why there? And here is the answer. What did the temple represent? Don't shout it out. Just think of it if, if you know. What did the temple represent? The temple represented the presence of God. The Holy of Holies. You remember the Holy of Holies? That's where the presence of the Lord hung out. But there was a problem, right? And we just sang about it. In your presence is the fullness of joy. What was the problem with the temple and the Holy of Holies? We couldn't get to the presence of God. Why? There were veils that covered it. There were walls that separated us from the presence of God where the fullness of joy is. And if you go today, because the temple has been rebuilt... If you go today, there's a thing called a wailing wall. Some of you may have seen it on television or been there. And, and here's the thing. It's this wall of the temple, and, and, and the Jewish people will get right up next to it. They'll press their foreheads. They'll press their faces and their bodies, and they'll just step up against it and get as close to it as they can. Why are they doing that? Why are they pressing their bodies up against this wall? Because they believe the Holy of Holies is on the other side of that wall. They think the presence of the Lord is on the other side of that wall. Jesus, listen, hear this. Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple, the tearing down of that wall, and his return at the same time to point us to the fact that there is coming a day where he is going to come back. And when he does, we are going to be in his presence without walls and without veils face to face forever this chapter was Jesus telling the disciples yes that temple that wall right there it's going to be destroyed and that is a picture of the day when I'm going to come back I'm going to get you I'm going to take you home and you are going to be in my presence forever that's why he does them both there
okay? That's chapter 13. Now, if you're confused, that's okay. Don't sweat it. You're in good company. It's been confusing people forever, all right? That's it. That's what it means. So here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together for the next few minutes. I want to talk about the actual second coming of Jesus. I've explained how he's describing the destruction of the temple. He was crazy accurate. But now let's talk about the other thing he talks about, the second coming. First thing, let's just get to the bottom of is can we use all these signs to also interpret his second coming? All right, they were crazy accurate about the temple. Can they also, are they going to be accurate about the second coming? I don't know. That's the answer. I have no idea. I think it's probably going to be, the, I think they're probably going to be the signs that he's coming back, but there's no way for us to know for sure until he comes back and then we're going to know. All right? So we're going to move on past that. I think it'd be really fun and cool to walk through all of them and try to figure out if they're happening today. I don't think we can do that. We don't know. But here's what we can know about the second coming of Christ. In Mark chapter 13, there are three things that we can know for certain about Jesus' return. We're going to look at those and we're going to be done. Here's the first one. Here's the first thing that you and I can know for absolute certain, with absolute certainty about the second coming of Jesus. Here's the first one. You ready? Number one. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. That's the first thing you can know for certain about Jesus coming. You don't know when he's coming, all right? Number one, let me show you. Jesus said it himself. Mark chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus, after all these signs about the destruction of the temple, his return, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Look at verse 32. But of that day, he's talking about the return, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. The angels right now, we know biblically, are worshiping the Lord 24 hours a day. We also know biblically that the angels are here on earth and they're ministering to the elect. And the scripture says they don't even know what's going to happen. And then watch the next part. It's kind of crazy. But at the end but of that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. Like, what are all the signs that's going to happen? Jesus, when are you going to come back? Jesus says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. Now, you're like me, you're like, wait a minute. I thought Jesus knew everything because he's God. Well, he does, but some way, somehow, he is submitting his divinity here. Either that, he's submitting his divinity to the Father, his omniscience in this moment to the Father, or he's making a, an allegory about how humanity cannot know. He says, the angels don't know, the Son doesn't know. What does he say who knows? Nor the Son, but the Father alone. But the Father alone. One of the first things, the first thing we know for certain about Jesus coming back is we don't know when it's going to be. Only the Father knows. But then Jesus does give us some action steps on what we're supposed to be doing until that happens. Watch what he says there in verse 33. Jesus says, take heed. Take heed. You know what that means? It means what I just said, believe it. As believers, and I'm going to talk a lot more about this next week, as believers, one of the things that defines us is a belief in the second coming. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do with the truth that I just told you, that I'm coming back. You need to believe it. It needs to be a part of your belief system. So he says, one, you got to believe it. Now watch what he says. He says, he says, take heed and keep on alert. Second thing Jesus says, get ready. You be ready. Christian, do not worry about when it's going to happen. You do two things. You believe it in your heart and you get ready for it. That's all you got to do. So that's the first thing. 
Here's the second thing that we can know for certain about Jesus coming back. The first one is nobody knows when it is. Here's the second thing you know for certain about the return of Jesus. Jesus is returning. That's the second thing you can know for certain. Amen? Jesus is coming back, right? Um, It says here, and, and by the way, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is Paul speaking to, and don't turn there, just listen, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. Paul's speaking to the persecuted church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, They're dying like crazy, and Paul's writing a letter to them, being persecuted. Watch what he says. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And by the way, have you ever wondered why Paul is, is always saying fall asleep? He never says dying. He always says falling asleep in Jesus. You know why he does that? Because when you're in Christ Jesus, death is nothing more than just falling asleep. It's something you're going to wake up from. And Paul says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. We shall always be with the Lord. This is how it's going to happen. At some point in time in the future, which nobody knows but the Father, the Father's going to look at the archangel Michael. And he's going to say, Michael, it's time. Let's get this thing started. And Michael's going to shout. And I don't know what that's going to sound like, but it sounds pretty awesome to me. The archangel Michael is going to shout. And then Gabriel, which is the one that proclaimed the coming of Jesus the first time, is going to pick up the trumpet of God, and he's going to blow the trumpet of God. And that's going to sound pretty amazing, too. I got a feeling we're going to know when this whole thing's going down. Amen? I don't think that's going to happen. We're like, I wonder what that is, you know? (laughs) Michael's going to shout. Gabriel's going to blow the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. And those of us who are alive and remain are going to meet him in the air. And we're going to be with the Lord forever. He's coming back. He's coming back. Last thing that we can know for certain about the coming of Christ. One, we don't know when it's going to be. We're supposed to believe it and get ready. Number two, he's coming back. Number three. Third thing you can know for certain about his return is that Jesus wants you to live your life in light of the truth that he's coming back. Whether or not he comes in our lifetime, it does not matter. Jesus is clear. He wants us to live our lives in light of the truth and reflection of the truth that he is coming back. You know those people, you know I'm talking about the folks, I don't even know who they are, but the people that like put up billboards all down the highway that say, October the 12th, 2016, he's coming back, get ready. There's something really, really wrong about that because they don't know. Right? Jesus said they don't know, and I'm not going to believe them, I'm going to believe in Jesus, right? They said they don't know. 
So there's something really, really wrong about that. But at the same time, there's something really, really good about that. That even though they're wrong, those people are living their lives in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus desires us to live today in light of that. Think about the question the disciples ask him. This hit me this week. Think about this. The disciples ask that question, or rather this, when when the disciples typically ask Jesus a question, how does Jesus typically respond? Right? He usually responds in a couple ways. One, they'll ask a question and he rebukes them because their question was so stupid. You know what I'm talking about? They'll ask a question. He's like, come on. Right? He's like, you don't get that? Why are you asking that? That's one of his responses. The second response is they'd ask a question and Jesus would respond in a parable and they'd have no clue what he was talking about. Right? Jesus went da 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 and then well let me tell you a story he tells a story and then they look at each other and go what did Jesus say I have no idea do you know what he said? I don't know what he said and then they have to ask him Jesus we don't know what that means and then he'd have to tell them and then the third thing is they'd ask him a question and his his response would just completely upend their worldview so they're not even thinking about the original question anymore they're dealing with the fact that he just said oh the greatest in the kingdom is going to be a servant because they asked him, who's going to be the greatest? Well, go serve. You'll be the greatest, right? And they're like, oh, wow, it hurts my head, right? Why in the world, this hit me this week, why in the world is Jesus so incredibly straightforward with this answer? Jesus, look at the beautiful buildings. Yep, it's going to be destroyed. When's it going to be destroyed? Well, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and it's going to stink. It's going to be really, really hard for you. But don't worry, I'm coming back. Why is he so straightforward? And here's the answer. Listen, Jesus was trying to show his disciples, and he's trying to show you and me, that living in light of the second coming of Jesus is going to enable you to endure the hardships and the suffering and the trials and the pain and the loneliness and the difficulty of this life. That's why I did it. Every single solitary one of those men who heard him say that, every one of them is going to suffer and they're going to suffer greatly for the name of Jesus within a few months and then the rest of their life and then, and then by the time they die, they're all going to suffer greatly. And Jesus is telling them, here's what's going to get you through this. Here's what's going to get you through this tribulation. Here's what's going to get you through this suffering. It's the truth that I'm coming back. You're going to be with me and I'm going to make everything right. John who heard Jesus say that is going to be boiled in oil in a few years. And he survives it. And the guy that boiled him on oil is like, dude, you just survived an oil boiling. I'm not messing with you. I'm exiling you to the island of Patmos. And then John's going to spend the rest of his life all alone. And Jesus is saying, hey, man, here's what's going to get you through that. I'm coming back. And you're going to be with me forever. James is going to be beheaded, Andrew crucified, Peter crucified upside down, and Jesus is saying, boys, you're going to be able to make it through all of that, and here's why. I'm coming back, and when I do, you're going to be with me forever, and I'm going to make it all right. Believer, when is the last time you endured, you walked through difficulty, trial, heartbreak, suffering, Shame, fear, loneliness. And you did it by turning to the comforting 
truth of Jesus' return for your consolation. That is what Jesus is teaching us to do. I'll finish today. I want you to just hear how Paul ends this this exhortation to the persecuted church in Thessalonica in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul says, don't grieve, Christian, like you have no hope. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Watch what he says, verse 18. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are dying people in the church of Thessalonica. And Paul says, here's what you comfort each other with in the midst of your persecution. Jesus is coming back. Don't grieve. Don't grieve like somebody who has no hope. Be comforted with those words. Jesus is coming back. If you're struggling right now, do not not fall into despair, church, like those who have no hope. Walk through it knowing and being comforted in the truth that Jesus is coming back. For those who are afraid today, afraid of the future, afraid of the political climate of our country, do not fear like those who have no hope. Be comforted in the words, Jesus is coming back. For those of you who who are lonely right now, Be comforted with these words. Your bridegroom, the lover of your soul, is coming back. And you're going to be with him forever. We've always been a church that's loved and celebrated and lived in the reality that Jesus came once. Let's be a church that loves and lives and walks and serves and worships in the reality that he's coming back. All right, quick video for you, and we'll be done. On July 14, 2009, I went in for a planned um, cesarean section. And while I was laying there on the operating table, I felt a little fuzzy and a little dizzy and a little lightheaded. Because I'm a nurse, I looked over at the cardiac monitor and saw that every other beat was an early beat that wasn't an efficient contraction of my heart. I just remember closing my eyes and seeing a white, just white everywhere, and being overcome with a peace that I can't even put into words.
Fast forward six weeks, and I remember standing in the kitchen when the phone rang, and it was my doctor, my cardiologist. She said, you might want to sit down to hear the news. So I sat down, and she said, well, I showed your echocardiogram to my other partners, and your heart's not functioning well. If your medication doesn't stabilize your heart where it is now, we're going to have to start talking about what it looks like to be on the transplant wait list. Um, and by the way, you're not going to have any more children. And that was a lot to swallow. My heart is not strong enough to pump out the amount of oxygenated blood that my body demands based on activity, walking around. It's weak. Instead of contracting forcefully like it should, it just quivers. And so my heart could go into a lethal, deadly rhythm at any moment. I'm reminded of the fact that I'm at risk for sudden cardiac death multiple times a day. Every time I walk up the stairs holding one of the kids, I get short of breath. Every morning and every night I take medicine. Dozens of times during the day I feel my heart beat in a funny manner. There are hundreds of times a day that I'm reminded that my life is not my own and in any moment Jesus could take it. One morning at church, I went to go pick up the kids from the kids' death area. And on my way to go get Noah, who is our oldest, I felt a pressure in my chest and some difficulty breathing and feeling like all the blood was getting caught up in my neck. And by the time I got to Hunter's room, I was feeling even worse. I told the kids' stuff staff at that point in time, I asked them if if they could help me get the kids in the car because I, don't, I didn't think I was going to be able to walk out to the car by myself with, with both of them. and I went to sign my name to check Hunter out and I couldn't even barely finish writing my name and I said, no, I'm going to collapse and you need to call 911 and you need to call my husband, John Manning, he's in my phone, but you need to call 911 first. And then I dropped to the floor. I remember that my sweet friend, Jen Carter, was over me praying. I told Jen, she needed to tell my boys about Jesus, because I wasn't going to be there to tell them. sat there thanking the Lord that he had given me 15 months. Hunter was 15 months at the time and thankful that I had had that time with them. 
And I really felt that was my time to go to heaven. I think before all of this happened, I found my worth in how productive I could be. I used to live in a manner of my to-do list for the day. I would beat myself up on if I didn't get it done. There are still moments that I do. I still make lists out every day. But I take a deep breath knowing if I only get two things done, I only get two things done. I get another day with my kids. I get another day with my husband. And if I don't get the laundry done, I don't get the laundry done. I never asked the Lord, why is this happening to me? I trust that He is in control, and that includes every breath and every heartbeat. I had a friend tell me once that I have a different type of worship to offer up to Him. And so despite the circumstances we've been in, He's teaching me how to worship Him. And I think it's kind of special that He's entrusted the suffering to me to worship Him in a way that I had never worshiped Him before. So what if we suffer here? This is not our home. I know where home is. He has saved my soul, and He has given me life, and He has lifted me from the grave, spiritually and for eternity. And that's what this life is all about. And this story is not about some girl who has a heart problem. This story is about how God is sanctifying and winning my soul for His name and how He is turning one of His people to praise Him despite circumstances of this life.